So we want to thank you for uh, attending the exchange. We're going to uh, have our discussion in Nimble's time now. And um, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> I thought that was awesome, Sam. I think next time we'll have you preach the sermon. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting how um, whenever, you know, when I was thinking through this idea of disappointment as well, um, yeah, like sporting events kept coming to my mind. I, um, yeah, the opening question is, have you ever experienced disappointment? Um, sorry, I couldn't get a better resolution uh, picture up there. But uh, for those of you who watched the Asia Cup finals, it was Korea versus Australia. And uh, such a nail-biting game. Uh, at the Melbourne City Adventist Church, we had a, we had a contingent of uh, Korea supporters and a contingent of uh, Australia supporters. And we uh, went to James's apartment to, to uh, watch and to have a friendly bit of rivalry. And uh, I don't know if any of you um, watched the game, but... In the, vet, in, the, in the last closing seconds of, of normal play, Australia was up 1-0. One, one and um, there's a young Korea stri- Korean striker who came in and kicked a goal in the very last second. I mean, it was down to the last second. And the Korea side cheered, and we were going crazy in James's apartment. And uh, you should have seen James's face. He was like, there's no way that just happened. I was like, yeah! And then it went into overtime, and Korea lost. <laughs> and so we, we had a friendly wager. If Korea loses, I'll wear the Australian jersey. And if, uh, if Australia loses, James is going to wear my jersey. <laughs> and I, I actually should have posted a picture of, uh, of me wearing the Australian jersey. But I remember that weekend thinking, oh, man, Korea lost. I was like, that's okay. Tomorrow the Seahawks are going to play in the, in the Super Bowl, which is my home team. And, and they lost in the last few seconds in that one too. And so it's just a very disappointing weekend when it comes to sports. But uh, obviously this isn't a major spiritual dilemma where I'm questioning my faith in God because, uh, because of uh, the, the favorite teams not winning. But I think something that everybody um, who uh, follows after Jesus will encounter is, is disappointment and discouragement. And so I wanted to talk about, um, I wanted to talk about disappointment, discouragement, and belief in the context of divine sovereignty this, uh, this afternoon. In the Bible, if you want to turn with me to the book of Acts, we're going to be looking at the closing scenes of this book. We've been traveling through this book together um, as a church, and we're about to finish this. Um, I wanted to look at the last two chapters of this book, or the uh, last three chapters of this book together. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 26. And to give you a little bit of a background, Paul has been spending a lot of time in Asia Minor ministering to the different churches there. And what he does is, uh, in order to start a new work, he goes into the synagogue where the Jewish people are gathered together and where they worship God, and he goes and he opens the Jewish scriptures to them. He opens the Torah, he uh, opens about prophecy, he talks about prophecy, and he begins to share why Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And what naturally happens is, there's a group of people who end up believing Paul, and saying, yes, we want to follow after Jesus. And then there's a group of people that get really upset because his teachings challenge their own faith, and they realize that something has to change. And uh, what ends up happening is uh, oftentimes his life is threatened, and he has to leave that area and go to another area, and that whole cycle begins again. Now, what takes place at the end of the book of Acts is after years and years of ministering in Asia Minor, Paul goes to Jerusalem because there's a feast day where all the Jewish people gather together in Jerusalem and they worship God together. And what ends up happening is Paul goes to the synagogue and he gets recognized and there are 
There are other Jewish leaders from Asia Minor that see Paul and they say, this is the guy that's trying to take down our religion and this massive riot ensues and uh, basically Paul's life is once again in danger. And uh, soon afterwards, he is arrested because there's such a uh, commotion that's taking place in the temple of Jerusalem and he gets thrown in prison in Caesarea. And this is where he pick up our story in Acts chapter 26. There's a ruler named Festus who is for one reason or another, trying to appease the Jews, and he keeps Paul in prison. He gets visited by a friend named Agrippa, who is a uh, an expert on Jewish custom and religion, and uh, Agrippa decides, I want to talk to Paul, and I want to know why he's causing all these problems. So if you want to skim along with me in your Bibles, um, you can skim from verse uh, about... Really, verse 1 to verse uh, 26 or so. But what I want to do is I'm just going to highlight what takes place at the end. Paul shares about his faith. He tells Agrippa why he believes what he believes, and he shares his testimony. And at the end, this is Paul's response to King Agrippa in verse 27. It says here, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And this statement is kind of profound to me because uh, Paul gives all kinds of great evidence to King Agrippa to cause him to believe. And yet the evidence almost brings about this decision for him to believe in Christ. And yet it doesn't. And it leads me to this conclusion. Evidence is important, But evidence does not always compel us to action. Evidence is important, but evidence does not always compel us to action. I'm curious, how many of you here believe that uh, refined sugar is good for you? Anybody? Okay, Luke believes that. (laughs) So this week, um, I was sitting down, and I had two Tim Tams in front of me. And I was a bit tired from the week, and I was like, I know... This is not good for me, and I shouldn't eat it. And then I ate it. (laughs) It tasted really good. And it's just common fact. You go to the airport, and there's this massive section on uh, that with uh, there's a massive section at each duty free that sells like a bunch of tobacco. And there's a big black banner on top of this section that says smoking causes cancer. And yet there's a massive section for a reason because tons of people buy duty free tobacco because it's tax free. And the the reality is. Even if we have the right evidence, it doesn't always compel us to action. And so, so it is with belief. If we search the scriptures, if we actually give God a chance, there's plenty of evidence to compel us to actually believe in God. And at the same time, that evidence is not enough. There are a couple of verses that I want to share with you. The first one is John chapter 7, verse 17. And Jesus here kind of talks about what does compel us to action. And at first it's going to sound circular, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me. Jesus says, If any man wills to do his will, he will know my doctrine. If any man is willing to take an action and take a step of faith out, you will find truth. You will find truth. You can read about God. You can meet people who know God. Um, but your personal search for God uh, gives a complete different experience that cannot um, be experienced at a distance. And so the gospel is caught just 
as it is taught. And so Jesus says, take a step out, you will find truth. Take a step out, you will find truth. Here's another verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And my question is, what does it mean to be pure in heart? There's a passage here in Psalm chapter 24, verse 4. It says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Um, I just kind of broke down a few of these, uh, the, the ideas in this verse. The first one is that uh, whoever has clean hands, in other words, an individual who is seeking to do the right thing. An individual who is seeking to do the right thing is someone who has a pure heart. One who does not lift up their soul to an idol. And basically, it's just any form of manipulation for personal gain. And true religion is not about benefiting self in a manipulated way. It basically allows God to say, you do what you need to do. I am submitting to you rather than creating something of my own imagination so that I can get what I want. And finally, there's this idea of um, deceit or in contrast would be honesty and genuineness. And so someone who is seeking to do right, someone who is willing to allow God to do whatever he needs to do, and someone who is genuine and honest is someone who has a pure heart. And so there's this counsel where Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will find God. Every person will come to a circumstance where their beliefs are challenged And it's in those moments that we can experience God by following what he calls us to do. And it sounds circular, but uh, it sounds circular. If you act faith enough, you will believe. And here's the difference. The difference is when you give God the space to actually work in your life, something supernatural should happen where God reveals to you, I am God. So when you read through the Bible, you see of stories of Peter walking on water and I kind of asked myself the question, what was going through, through Peter's mind as he first stepped out of the boat? I wonder if he thought, yep, the water's going to be safe. Or if he stepped out of the boat and his foot kind of touched the water and he didn't sink and he thought, hey, I'm actually walking on water. So he takes the next step and the next step and you know the rest of the story. There's another story in the Bible where Israel is trying to cross the Jordan River and there's this large group of people and they have this massive body of water that's separating them from their destination and God commands them, you walk out over the water. And the Bible says that as they stepped, the water parted. And so they would take one step and the water would part. They would take another step and the water would continue to part as they crossed over the Jordan River. I often ask myself the question, Why does God design faith this way, where we have to almost wait independence rather than something just immediately happening? There are two reasons that I can think of. One is that when we have to wait on God, it reveals our true motives, and that realization of our true motives can be transformative to us. It lets us know how how genuine we are in our waiting. The second reason in that process of waiting on God to actually see him act as we take that step out, it builds intimacy and dependence and reliance on God. And so in our moments of doubt and wonder, when we submit to the divine sovereignty to, uh, divine sovereignty of God, it allows him a chance to act. There's a verse here in Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I often think of this passage or these two concepts as uh, proactive, um, 
uh, proactive waiting. And so it's expecting God to do something. He calls us to take a step forward. And at the same time, we are waiting for God to act in a supernatural way. Proactive waiting. And so here's Paul talking to King Agrippa. And Agrippa says, you almost, almost convinced me to be a Christian. And I wonder, I wonder what Paul was thinking. And I wonder what would have caused Agrippa to take that step forward. I imagine he heard Paul's testimony. He's convicted and he's thinking, this is the right thing to do. But if I take this step forward, it's gonna be, there's going to be a sacrifice that I have to take. And he realizes this is too expensive for me and I can't take that step. And so he says, Paul, I'm almost there, but I'm not quite there. I wonder what would have happened if Agrippa actually take, uh, took that step. If you continue on in the story in Acts chapter 27, Agrippa comes to the conclusion that Paul is innocent. And Paul, being a Roman citizen, basically says, listen, I'm being put on trial because of my religious beliefs. But because I'm, a, because I'm a Roman citizen, I want to go before Caesar, and I want to appear before his uh, seat of judgment, and I want to be tried there. And so the story goes that Paul hops on this boat with other prisoners and other soldiers, and he takes off. And in the Bible, if you want to read through the chapter, I'm just going to kind of um, narrate if you want to skim along. It says that... Um, Paul and these other prisoners and these other soldiers on this boat, they're in a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassie. And Paul tells them, I know that you're thinking of launching out and uh, taking off to another port called Phoenix, but um, I perceive that this is very dangerous and we should not move forward. We shouldn't leave this harbor. And so the owner of the boat and the other soldiers kind of confer together. If you look at verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, and basically they decide this harbor is not suitable for the wintertime. Uh, this is storm season. It's quite dangerous. But as soon as the weather dies down a little bit, we're going to try and um, take off anyway. And so uh, basically they make a decision. They head off. And sure enough, um, as soon as they take off, uh, they hit a storm. And the Bible says that, or the story goes, that there's this massive headwind that takes place, and the ship is not even able to sail um, because there's that headwind, and basically the sea just kind of takes them. So you can imagine there's this boat, um, and the text says that there's 276 people on this boat, and for days they're just kind of swept down by the sea, and there's no way for them to actually sail in the direction that they need to sail. And pretty soon the boat hits a sandbar, and uh, they're just stuck there for days. And so you can imagine at this point in time, uh, the people on the boat start getting discouraged. And they're thinking, why did we leave the harbor? Why did we risk our lives? Um, and basically, it's at that point in time that they have to offload their goods off the boat to be free of the sandbar. And the, the sea then takes them again, and they get stuck a second time. And here's uh, what I want to bring your attention to. If you look at verse 21, disappointment begins to sink in uh, to these travelers. And in verse 21 it says, After a long abstinence from food, Paul stood up in the midst of them and he begins to speak. It's kind of interesting to me that they're in this place of discouragement and disappointment and the first thing that they decide to do is to stop eating. And the text says that it's about 14 days that they're on this boat. The water is, uh, the sea is quite, um, uh, the boat is basically not in a good place. And they decide, we're going we're gonna to cease from food. Now, it's interesting to me, and it's normal that in a place of disappointment and discouragement, not to take nourishment needed. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever I get to a place where I'm kind of disappointed about something, the first thing that exits my, the first thing that exits my life is uh, exercise. 
And after that, like, my eating habits kind of go off kilter. And it, it's weird because if I'm in a bad place, you would think the thing that's going to make me feel better is to actually eat some food and go get some exercise. And so it is with these people on the boat. You're sailing. Um, it's not good conditions. You're actually using a lot of energy. And you would think what you really need to do is eat right now. But that's the thing that they choose not to do. There's a, there's a story called The Little Prince. Um, and uh, basically, there's this interaction between this little boy, this prince, and a drunkard who's on a planet. And he asks the drunkard, why are you drinking? And the drunkard says, because I'm sad. The little prince says, well, why are you sad? And the drunkard says, because I'm drinking. And it's, it's weird. When you get put in this place of discouragement, there's often this cycle, this downward cycle, where it's kind of like, I feel bad, I'm going to do something, and it's going to make me feel worse, and it's almost like really difficult to pull out of that. And so, what Paul does, if you look at verse 33, is he, he tries to reverse the cycle. He tries to reverse the cycle. And I want to talk about what we can do practically um, as people who are um, seeking after God. What can we do in our moments of discouragement, in our moments of disappointment? Verse 33, it says, As the day was about dawn, Paul talked to them, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. He says, I urge you to take food, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head of any of you. So he says, listen, God is giving you a promise. You are going to survive this storm. Verse 35, And when he had said these things, he took bread gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, he began to eat, and this encouraged the other soldiers. This is an interesting phenomena that Paul eats himself, it encourages those around them, and they eat for themselves, and they get strengthened. In the Bible, there's a spiritual significance to what it means to eat. And I don't know if, uh, I'm sure most of you have gone through um, a service called Communion, And for those of you who haven't, communion is this time where um, we eat bread together and uh, we drink juice together. And that bread and juice represents the body of Christ. And so there's this part in the Bible where Jesus says, eat of this bread, drink of this wine, because you are partaking of me. And what happens is in that symbolic act of eating the bread, we are saying, Jesus, I am partaking of who you are and I am abiding with you. It's kind of like what it's saying... uh, It's what it means to just say, Jesus, me and you, I want to be close to you, in a a simple way. And so oftentimes in the Bible, what it means to eat is to partake of Jesus. Now, there are a couple verses that I want to share with you um, that recently have uh, become something that's quite meaningful to me. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And... There's a story of Jesus and eating that I, th- that I find quite significant. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 to 4. Now, in this story, Jesus goes into the wilderness, and basically he fasts for 40 days. I'm curious, how many of you have ever tried fasting? Anybody? All right, I've got a couple people. There's a point in time in my life where I tried fasting, and there was a big decision that I had to make, and I really wanted to basically ask God for wisdom. And so I fasted, and uh, it was a two-day period. So basically, I uh, started on the day, 
and then two days passed, and then the next morning, I decided oh, it was time to eat. Otherwise, I was going to die. And so, um, usually at breakfast time, I would eat wheat bix. And I don't know about you, but when I eat wheat bix, it's not like this joyous, joyous occasion. You know what I mean? It's like this cereal bar that's very bland. And like, I love sanitarium, but it's just kind of like you know, it's just to get some calories into my body. And uh, anyway, that morning, I remember. Um, bringing that wheat bix up to my mouth, and I could like smell the wheat. It was like this incredible, incredible experience. And my, I was just like, "Oh, this is gonna taste so good." And that was like the best wheat bix I've ever had in my life. And anyway, I read this story, and I'm thinking, Jesus is fasting for 40 days, no food, and um, basically he's just, he must have been starving. And in the story, it says, after he had fasted for 40 days, the tempter came to him and said. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I just thought, that is such an interesting response to a temptation. Hey, eat this bread. And then he quotes this verse. And it's kind of like, it just sounds like something from left field. And so um, I kind of asked myself, Where does that text come from? And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus has a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses uh, 2 to 4. And it's here that uh, Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he's communicating to them. He's telling them, remember how God acted in your life. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2, it says, Remember that the Lord your God led you all these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might uh, make you know um, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And here's where this text is mentioned. And if you look at verse 4, he says, Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell those 40 years. Can you imagine having clothes that last for 40 years? I mean, I'm pretty lucky if a pair of shoes lasts for like a year, right? And I'm like, oh, that was a good pair of shoes. Here, the Israelites have clothing that lasts for 40 years because God sustains and he provides for them. Not only that, Moses says, hey, remember when God provided food for you for 40 years every single day so that you wouldn't starve. And then, and then he drops this line, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And for me, this is kind of interesting because this verse is used to remind the Israelites how God has provided and how they were fed. And here's Jesus starving for 40 days, and he quotes this exact same verse to the tempter. And I ask myself, how does that even make sense? On one hand, you have people that are fed, verse. And then, you have a, and then you have a situation where somebody is starving and gives the exact same verse. It dawns on me that when this verse is used, that God provides for our sustenance, it doesn't always mean that we're going to get what we ask for. But it does mean that God is saying, you step out in faith, you do what I'm asking you to do, and I will provide for you, and I'm going to make sure that you have an expected end, just like Sam was sharing. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's highlighting this text is about being sustained by being obedient, 
sustained by saying, God, we are trusting in you, even if this doesn't have any immediate benefit to me. And so when Israel stepped into the wilderness, they were being obedient to God's call. Leave Egypt, go into the wilderness, I'm going to take you to Canaan. And they're saying, we are going to respond to that, we are obeying. And so they use that verse and God says, I'm taking care of you. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, quotes the exact same verse, hasn't eaten anything. And he's saying, I'm being sustained because I know God is with me, even if I'm hungry right now. There's a time in discouragement and disappointment where our expectations are not met, where we're asking God, why did this take place? If I'm hungry, my needs are met by you giving me food. And God is saying, in your moments of need, trust that I am here and I'm asking you to obey what I'm asking you to do. And in that, you will find a sustenance that cannot be explained. It's in those moments of discouragement and disappointment that as we partake of God's word, we gain instruction with God. We spend time with God and we, uh, we begin to understand the will of God in our lives. So God wanted those people on, the, on board the ship to know, I want you to live and you need to get to an island. So basically what happens in the story is, if you go back to Acts chapter 27, Acts chapter 27, and you look at the end of the story from verse about 38 onward, and it says that as this ship is stuck, the waves come and the waves actually start destroying the ship. And Paul says, don't worry, you're going to be saved, eat something. And what God is trying to communicate to the soldiers and to the prisoners is, you eat, you be nourished, because you have to swim. And if you don't swim, you're going to perish in the sea. And so their moment of communion with God, eating bread, finding out what the will of God is, finding out what the power of God was, finding out what the goodness of God was, was gaining energy and strength so that they could swim. And so Paul says, eat and you're going to be saved. And what happens is as the boat gets destroyed, those that are able to swim to shore make it, and those that are not able to swim take pieces of the boat and they float to uh, shore safely. And at the end of the chapter in verse 44, it says that there wasn't a single person who died that day. Every single one of them made it to the land. There's a man named James Smith, and he writes this uh, book called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. Um, James Smith was an experienced yachtsman and a classical scholar, and he made a careful story of Luke's account of what takes place in the story. And basically, um, it's basically he goes through the exact route that Paul took, and he was quite familiar and acquainted with the route. And this is what he says about Luke's um, story here. He says, No sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor, because obviously Luke was not a sailor. And then he also says, as he follows up from that statement, no man, not a sailor, could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts unless from actual observation. I just thought that was kind of like an interesting point that Luke shares about their journey of sailing and this person who is an actual sailor says, you know what, that guy was telling the truth. This, this is actually exactly what would happen that time of the year going through this type of a, this type of a route uh, to Rome. And I just thought that was very interesting. And so, anyway, that was just a side comment, but... Yeah, this idea of disappointment and discouragement is so important to be able to commune with God. At the very moment where we don't want to spend time with God, when we take a step back and say, God, 
I actually need to spend time with you. It's in those moments of need that God brings encouragement to us. Now, the sermon um, topic was in regards to the church, was in regards to when the church disappoints. And I was thinking through this story, I just thought that there was an interesting uh, metaphor when it comes to the actual boat and the church. For example, the boat is a vehicle that is supposed to transport a man with the gospel message. Um, So I would kind of liken Peter to or Paul to Jesus. Those in charge of the boat made a bad decision, putting those on board in danger. And uh, there are times where the church, uh, that's a vessel, uh, it seems to be misguided by those that are in charge. I don't know if you've ever come across somebody who made a bad decision and you just kind of think, why did that happen? If you look at verse 31, Paul commands those that are on board to stay on the ship. He says, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. The ship or the church is designed to keep us safe. But if you look at verse 41, it says, um, the ship basically gets blown apart by the sea. And the ship is not the end. It's just a means to get us to land. And so regardless, the church is designed to keep people safe. And though sometimes people who lead the church uh, fail, God is still guiding the church. If you look at verse 23 and 24, as they're in the middle of this difficulty, uh, Paul says, There stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Uh, granted you all those who sail with you. In other words, everyone is going to be saved. And so, regardless of how faulty the boat may seem, regardless of the bad decisions that are made, there are moments where God gives these uh, encouraging words of, I am in this very place. I am in this very place. And so, yeah, I just thought that it kind of put the purpose of the church in perspective. Sometimes we make church the end goal. As long as people are in the church, everything's going to be okay. But the point is that the church is supposed to get us home. And um, I think that's the same case with this boat as well. And so... When we consider disappointment, when we consider belief in the context of divine sovereignty, I want to encourage us that as we spend time with God in our moments of difficulty, may we be encouraged by the word of God, by the direction of God, and by the divine providence of God. May God bless you.